we're sorry, but we have to report according to these regulations and we have to talk with you about these issues. And we don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. It's a law. Innovations in Sustainable Finance. A University of St. Gallen podcast by Julian Kölbel. Hello and welcome to another episode of my podcast, Innovations in Sustainable Finance. I'm Julian Kölbel, Assistant Professor at the University of St. Gallen. Today, I'm fortunate to have with me in the studio Lena Hörnlein, Senior Manager at B Capital Partners. And we're going to talk about uh, sustainable investments and regulation. Lena, welcome to the studio. Hello, very glad to be here. So to kick us off, I would like to invite you to tell us a little bit about what you do at, at B Capital Partners. I'm working as a senior manager in um, transactions and ESG. And um, maybe it's interesting also to know what our firm is doing as a whole. So MB Capital Partners is an asset manager based in Zurich. And we focus on investments in sustainable infrastructure, um, mainly um, energy transition infrastructure. So what we do is that we um, manage funds. Um, and for these funds, we buy... Um, renewable energy assets, for example, or other assets. Um, we also invest in battery storage, um, EV charging infrastructure, and these types of assets. Um, we buy them. Um, we we have a buy and hold approach. That is, we, we um, hold them over a longer period of time, so seven to fifteen years, about, and we manage these assets, optimize them, and then ideally we generate a return for our investors. And yeah, pay this return to our investors. And um, the investors are institutional investors mainly, also high net worth individuals, um, yeah, pension funds, banks, insurances, these types of investors. So the, the assets you invest in, they are mostly private market assets. Is that right? Yes, exactly. They're only private market assets. Um, in infrastructure, that's usually the case, I would say. Or that's kind of the typical way to invest in infrastructure. Um, yeah, we, we mainly focus actually on, on smaller to medium-sized projects or firms um, because here we really observe a need for capital. So we feel like we can make a contribution to the energy transition um, because there's a need for capital. And of course, a nice side effect is also that um, there's a, bit, a little bit less competition. So um, we Prices are generally a bit lower and because these types of assets are sometimes overseen by larger um, asset managers. So we can generate really nice returns for our investors. So can I think of this very concretely as, for example, uh, a wind turbine that has been built, it's standing there, it's generating electricity, and at that point you buy the asset and uh, then your revenue is, is, for example, from the sale of the electricity, something like exactly. that. Exactly. So we um, invest in already operational assets, but we also look at um, assets that are currently still under development. Um, but we would not typically take development risks ourselves. We would get in whenever all the permits are already received and the asset is either, either ready for construction or already in construction. I see. 
And and your focus seems to be really on on energy transition assets. Let me say all the way from energy production, uh, wind, uh, but then storage with batteries, charging for electric vehicles. Exactly. It seems that is at, it's kind of a thematic focus of your fund. Exactly. Is that fair yeah, to say? yeah. So my firm they um, were founded in two thousand three, I think, and that was always. Um, yeah, the, that's the founders' background, their expertise, and um, yeah, we've always focused on these types of assets. Um, so yeah, it's more the more mature markets as re with renewable energies like wind and solar, but also as I mentioned, battery, which is kind of sort of as a, at a transitional stage between sort of um, yeah, not 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 super new, but also not super mature yet. And we actually have this very nice um, portfolio. Of uh, 300 megawatts um, uh, of a pipeline acquired in Germany. That's one of the actually largest ones for Germany um, that yeah, provides um, balancing energy to the grid. Um, so that's one example. But yeah, we also look at EV charging. We look at um, hydrogen, which is slightly um, less mature. Um, yeah, so the whole array of the energy transition, let's say. I've been asking you around the details of that because I wanted to establish that I think it's pretty clear that this is a fund that caters to sustainable investors, let me say, right? There's, there, this is, um, for those who are interested in uh, supporting the energy transition to be involved in it perhaps as well. Um, and I wanted to discuss with you how that which you do squares with um, regulation that is coming mainly from the European Union and, and that certainly has implications for your fund and the positioning of your fund. What I'm trying to do is to get sort of some evidence from the field, what regulation does to funds such as the one that you're working at, uh, what incentives it sets, what uh, advantages it perhaps awards you and, and really how it kind of interacts with what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, one central piece of European regulation is the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation. And I think that is most famous among practitioners and to some extent among investors now that it requires funds to classify themselves as Article 6, 8 or 9. And it's kind of widely assumed that Article 9 funds are the greenest funds. Uh, your fund, having a pretty clear sustainability profile, however, has chosen to go for Article 8. Um, I find that an interesting fact, and I'd like you to sort of give us some details around why that is the case. Yes, thank you for the question. That's indeed interesting. Um, let me maybe um, split the question in a few parts, because so first, maybe it's, it's good if I explain a little bit what we've been doing in, in ESG and sustainability management and reporting already, even before um, the SFDR, the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation came into force. Um, and then maybe I can explain a little bit what Article 6, 8 and 9 means. And um, yeah, and from that, I think it's it's easier probably to explain how, why, what, why we are Article 8 and not 9 currently. That sounds like a perfect plan for okay. me. So yeah, yeah, please go. So um, so yeah, I joined my firm two years ago, and yeah, fortunately there were already a lot of processes in place um, when it comes to ESG. 
also because our founder, she's very passionate about ESG topics um, and has um, even academically written a lot about the, the topic. Um, and we basically have a three-step process when it comes to ESG, which follows our investment process. So first, um, there's a sourcing stage, um, the DD stage, which is due diligence, and then the asset management phase. But I can explain in turn what which each of the stages mean. So um, the sourcing stage is basically when we first look at an investment, we um, enter into discussions with the potential seller, look at the firm, look at some um, some data, some um, information the seller sends us and have, and have conversations with the seller. And at this stage, in terms of um, ESG or sustainability, we first apply our exclusion list. Um, it's basically the stuff activities we cannot invest in under any circumstances. And that includes, for example, coal or deforestation or nuclear or uh, anything linked to weapons or so. And um, by the way, this is, yeah, this is a very small step, I would say, in ESG that almost all funds do. And by the way, this would already qualify almost um, everything you need to do for already qualifying for Article 8. Um, have such simply this this exclusion of certain exactly. activities that that exactly. gets you to article so if you eight. argue that okay. well you can already become article eight pretty much just with that so then and and maybe it, i'm sorry to uh, um come in with this early but the number of exclusions that you have there is is that a critical factor or basically for the article eight the you mean can i have one one exclusion yeah i mean then uh, that's and we'll talk about that later. It's all a little bit up to how um, to to uh, how comfortable you feel arguing that this mm -hmm. satisfies for Article Eight. But in in my understanding, there's no further guidance. You could have one exclusion on your list, and if you feel comfortable arguing that, um, you could argue for Article Eight. Even though I don't okay, think actually I don't think that the fund is currently doing that um, because it would maybe look not so good for the for investors. Yeah. Let, let's hold that feeling comfortable for for later. But I'll let you continue. So, you were onto your three yeah, phases. Yeah, so exactly. So we just first apply the exclusion list. Then we also look at our prospectus, which is the mo the most important legally binding document towards our investors, which lays out all the binding elements of our investment strategy, and um, it also contains. Um, uh, provisions in terms of um, ESG, uh, especially or yeah, partly due to the SFDR actually. And here we we check if the the future investment would make a contribution to a sustainable objective um, and how we would measure that. Um, and that we have partly introduced because of the SFDR. Um, so, for example, for a wind park, we would say, okay, what is a sustainable contribution? We um, we um, generate clean energy. How can we measure that? We measure the kilowatt hours per year produced. And are these things because you mentioned the three uh, these three stages: the the sourcing, due diligence, and asset management. So, so these uh, commitments that you make in your prospectus, they would then. Um, 
have a bearing on on due diligence and and the actual investment decision. I yes, presume. but I mean, this is all still in the sourcing stage. So then, if we pass oh, the sourcing stage, so in the sourcing stage we check at exclusion list and prospectus. Then, if then if everything is good, also from a commercial perspective, we pass to the due diligence phase. So the due diligence is then an in-depth analysis of the asset itself, and we have. Um, usually external advisors to assist us with that who are specialized in specific topics such as um, technical um, due diligence advisors, legal advisors, and also ESG advisors. And so also our ESG advisors then in the, in the um, ESG DD, they cover a, a really wide array of topics in their analysis. For example, what kind of management processes are in place at the, at the um, target company, in terms of ESG, is there a specific um, a team or in place or is the manager responsible for ESG? Is the firm operating in line with laws and regulations, for example, concerning environmental factors? Is the asset built in such a way that it doesn't do damage to the environment? For example, um, for um, battery assets, there's always the the danger of fires. So there's a lot of laws and regulations in place on how the asset has to be built to, to prevent fires um, from happening and from spreading to the environment. Um, does the company have a, a policy for, um, for example, to manage conflicts of interests or what do companies do in, in case of harassment? Is there a whistleblower channel? How does the company deal with its supply chain? Do they have a supply chain policy? Do they audit their suppliers? Um, and then we also do a quantitative climate scenario analysis where we would look at um, how um, various levels of climate change would affect the asset. Um, so um, are the components resistant um, to heat? Um, is the asset located in an area um, that's exposed to um, possible floods, etc.? Um, also, for example, we had a hydro asset once um, where Actually, the climate scenario analysis revealed that the production would go down. Um, uh, it was a hydro acid in Switzerland, so um, of course the, the amount of precipitation has a direct impact actually on the on the returns on the on the production of the assets and thereby on the returns. So then, yeah, we analyze all. I this. see. So in the yeah, in, in the due diligence, you there's first a filter in the sourcing. Uh, according to some exclusion criteria, um, and then there's a, an in-depth investigation into a whole range of exactly. issues in the due yeah, diligence. Exactly. I see. So then we, from that, we have certain um, results, um, and we decide. Okay, so how do we now um, include these results in in the transaction? Like, what are the yeah, what are the to dos now? So, for example, in the case of the, the hydropower asset um, having lower production, we would include that in the financial model, and then we would ne renegotiate the purchase price with the seller. Um, in other cases, we would say, uh, like in the case of the fire protect protection measure for a battery storage asset, we, if there was any gap identified, we would say, no, uh, we only close the transaction if the, this protection is in place. So it has to be address addressed before the closing and then in other cases um, we might include ah so so you are that involved in that it, this is almost a sort of engagement right so you give feedback what you see as uh, um, 
unacceptable risks. Exactly. And you say, well, this this needs to be taken exactly. care of before we can proceed. Exactly. And I mean, oh. it's also important to note that these risks, um, they're not only ESG, let's say. They're very, I mean, for example, the fire um, hazard or the, um, the reduced production, there are either technical risks or um, or commercial risks also. So we also always try yes. actually that the ESG advisors um, exchange also with the other advisors so that they they are all in line because these topics they all overlap so ESG could um, could touch on a whole array of issues even legal issues mm. yeah no I could imagine a fire if you cause a fire that you might be liable to all sorts of claims afterwards. exactly um, yeah mm. yeah so then we include this and um, include these provisions in the contracts and yeah, I mean, I have to say, I also think we have, because we focus on these smaller assets, we have a lot of leverage actually to um, to realize changes there. Um, because we are often also majority owners then of the projects, um, which gives, gives mm -hmm. us more leverage. And also the operators or the sellers or the, the firms themselves, um, yeah, since they're small, they are often a bit faster in implementing changes. Um, mm -hmm. so for example, they, they can adjust their processes, they can draft policies, they, they, they're just generally faster. So I think compared to, for example, like a, a public equity fund operated by BlackRock that holds like a 1% share and a, a utility, I think we have on our investments a whole lot more leverage in terms of ESG. Yes. Okay, great. Let's let's get back to what was your second point? Uh, what uh, SFDR? Right. So that's the due yeah. diligence phase, um, and then the last phase is the asset management phase, and then um, and there we basically implement the measures that were identified during due diligence, and we also use the quarterly SG reporting to to enter a dialogue with the portfolio companies to to implement more measures to improve certain indicators, and um, yeah, and so these are the three phases: uh, sourcing due diligence mm -hmm. asset management um but yeah now your question was why are we not article 9 so um maybe let's should we talk a little bit about what these articles are what they are yes please do because i think me and many others will appreciate some yeah. insight on, on what is the essence of these three yeah. numbers so Article 8 basically is the weakest category so if you're an Article 8 fund you only have to disclose um how you integrated sustainability risks into your investment decision. And you can also opt for saying um, sustainability risks are not relevant. And then you have to get reasons for that. And that's basically it. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, if you don't, if you don't want to do much on ESG, you, you can be Article 8. Um, then Article 8, uh, sorry, Article 6, then you can be Article 6. Um, Okay, so this is important. Article six is the weakest exactly. category because I was just uh, I was just making a note that this is no, confusing. Sorry, I, okay, article yeah, six is the weakest exactly. category, right? Okay. Um, so then, article eight is the next category. Um, so for that, you have to disclose um, how you promote environmental or social characteristics. How your fund promotes those characteristics, and there's actually no clear definition of promoting an environmental or social characteristic. And what we have seen in the market is 
um, that it could be an exclusion list, as I said earlier. It could be an external ESG score that you take into account when selecting your assets. Um, it could be doing an ESG DD, like I described, and incorporating the findings. Or it could be up to more impactful things, like actually investing in a wind park. Um, so it's very um, open and what it what these characteristics are. And then there's one second provision, um, which is that you have to show how um, or explain how good governance practices um, in the investee companies have been assessed. So, for example, that they have sound management structures, that there's tax compliance, etc. So these are the two things you have to do for Article 8. So uh, for Article 9, um, um, Article, the Article 9 fund is an article is a financial product that um, contributes to one or several sustainable investment objectives. And um, here's also a link to the EU taxonomy already, actually. So if your fund um, has environmental objectives, you have to explain to which of the EU taxonomy except objectives it contributes. And that could be there's a list of six objectives and one is for example climate mitigation one um, climate adaptation etc um, and then if you have a socially sustainable objective um, that's a little bit more open there's a definition in the SFDR of um, what socially sustainable could be um, but the EU taxonomy covering social aspects is actually not finalized yet um, so there's for social um, objectives there's no link to the EU taxonomy so, but that doesn't mean that your fund is then automatically aligned with the EU taxonomy. It just means you have to say, okay, which, which objective are you targeting? Um, and then there's a whole array of other things you have to do, um, which um, concerns mainly um, the do no significant harm provision, which means you have to show that... Um, yeah, that your fund or your investment um, didn't harm any sustainable investment objective, any of the other ones that you don't um, predominantly target with your investment. So, so, so any of the six in the environmental. Yeah, domain, in my understanding, instance, it could be actually it could go further than that because yeah, these six they only cover environmental aspects and um, the regulation says. Um, sustainable investment objectives so that could also be social ones but it's it's not totally mm -hmm. clear what what these are um yeah and then they i see so if i want to have an article 9 fund i have to uh show that i contribute to some environmental or social objectives and that i do no significant harm so at least not uh, negatively contribute to to any other sustainable objective. Exactly. So, and they give some more um, flesh to this question of do no significant harm um, by saying you should also explain how you have taken the um, PAIs or PIs into account. So these are the principal um, adverse um, impact indicators, um, which is a list of indicators that basically measure harm to to any of these um, sustainable investment objectives. So it's a list of 13 mandatory indicators and, and you also have to report on two additional um, indicators that you can choose from a longer list. And they cover, yeah, they cover environmental aspects, um, 
like um, the carbon footprint, that cover social aspects like the gender pay gap or um, governance, like policies in place at the portfolio companies. Um, there's actually no definition of what it means to take uh, principal adverse impact indicators into account. So the regulation asks for um, explaining how you take them into account, but they don't say what that means. And then the same on um, and the second um, aspect under do no significant harm um, is the, then you have to explain how you are aligned or how your investments are aligned with the OECD guidelines for multinational enterprises and the UN guiding principles on, on business and human rights, which are two um, yeah, widely acknowledged are international ESG principles. But again, they don't define what does it mean being aligned. Um, plus, um, these, yeah, plus these principles are very, very wide ranging, but maybe we can talk about that later. No, it, it seems, um, so my impression is that Article 9 is um, already quite detailed in terms of, a, you know, a list of indicators that you have to consider, um, but conceptually still kind of open. Sort of, if you know, if you tell me it's not defined how taking principal adverse impacts pies into account, um, but there are 32 of them that you have to take into account. Um, 15, that is an interesting 15. situation. Yeah. Ah, excuse me, 15. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so so I don't know, maybe you are ready to, or you're prepared to explain why, why your fund has chosen to go for Article 8? Yeah, exactly. So, um, Honestly, in the end, in the beginning, we simply wanted to be conservative because, um, as I already pointed out, it, there's so many questions still around the regulations, and we wanted to avoid to um, classify the Article Nine and then later having to tell our investors, "Sorry, now that a lot of things have been clarified, we actually have to um, we have to downgrade to Article 8. and this is in fact what a lot of funds did. Um, so I'm. In 2022, Article 9 funds assets under management shrank by about 40% um, because, yeah, there was a lot of uncertainty on on what what it means to be to have sustainable investments. Um, actually, now we might that the EU Commission has then uh, clarified that it's really largely up to the financial sector players to define what a sustainable investment is. So we might see a further wave of upgrades again from um, Article 8 to Article 9. Um, and yeah, what this means for us, I mean, we we are considering to upgrade to Article 9 and um, um, yeah, but we don't, uh, again, we, we want to avoid to do this flip flipping like um, the market does. To, mm -hmm. to provide some stability to our investors. And um, I mean, no matter what we decide, basically, we will still report um, according to Article 8 plus, which I can also explain what it means. Um, basically, having we already have 100% of sustainable investments. So we, in, in any case, we report according to all the requirements um, as if we were an Article 9 fund. We just don't label it as such. Um, so yeah, that's that's basically the approach we have taken to be a bit conservative. And I'm curious, is it would it do you think it would be important for your fund to to classify as Article Nine because from the outside this is seen as some sort of 
badge of honor to be sort of a really dark green fund. Um, yeah, I mean, we have communicated so far that we are ready to upgrade at any point if it's an important aspect for any of our investors. And up to now, actually, that wasn't the case yet. I think there's also awareness among the investors that this, this regulation is still in flux and that the labels are actually not as clear-cut. And I think they they do see that... Um, that yeah, they do see that we're basically in a, um, a sustainable fund from our activities, judging from our activities. Yes, but, but but this is what I find a little bit concerning is that I would, I mean, yes, you can argue about the details, but I think from a little bit of a distance and comparing to the rest of the product landscape, the fund that you're involved in is pretty clearly a sustainable investment product, right? All the assets are immediately involved in the energy transition. Uh, you take care to avoid any other harms that you might cause on the social side in terms of fires caused, and, and you had those examples. Um, you take care to um, analyze risks associated with uh, with climate change, for example. So in the ideal regulation, I should say, it should be easy for your fund to say, well, we are, you know, among the most ambitious products out there. Um, but you don't. And I think that's an issue. Yeah, I think you get to the core of, of one of the, the big problems of the SFDR regulation itself. Um, and that is, I think, that it um, has been designed as being sector agnostic. So um, that means it's it's almost irrelevant what kind of activities you fund. And you can always put up some argument of why you consider some ESG characteristics, which in the end, I think, are marginal to, to or, or let's say are, are less important than what it is, the activity that you actually fund. And um, mm -hmm. the, but the, the sad thing is that um, as a financial sector player, we are bound by the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation. And um, for example, the EU taxonomy, which I see in a bit of a more positive light, but kind of like the icing on the cake. So if you want and you already have sustainable investments, you can choose to disclose according to, your to the EU taxonomy. Um, I mean, the EU taxonomy has its own problems, um, but at least it is focus on the activity level and it has it provides certain thresholds that are tailored to the type of activity etc i mean the 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 sfdr um yeah i think the problem is really it's it's being used as a labeling scheme but there's no definitions of the labels so I mean, in ideal, ideally, you would get the, the same data set, the same um, type of information for each fund, but because each fund can draw up their own, their own approach, their own definition of what a sustainable investment is, in the end, you have zero comparability between the different products mm -hmm. that actually made comparability worse in a way. Um, yeah. Yeah, I also feel that... Um that the objectives of the of the regulation perhaps haven't been achieved uh, as much, right? I think the the idea was to 
increase transparency, um, to avoid greenwashing, and and to promote the the sector of sustainable investing in general. Um, um, and and what what you're telling me is that um, it doesn't really incentivize the right actions. Um, perhaps maybe if we can drill down into that, is is there something that purely the 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 uh, arrival of that regulation has made you to do differently in in the investment itself or or in the communication about it? Well, I think I mean you certainly get a lot more accurate in what you report, and and um, I think that was also a goal of the of this regulation to sort of have this legal responsibility by the financial sector players to that they are legally bound to report only accurate statements about their um, ESG and sustainability processes. So I think we have certainly um, reviewed all our existing processes and have become a lot more um, specific and probably also cautious in what we claim, etc. So I think that is good. But yeah, since the since we can apply our own definitions, um, yeah, fundamentally we have. I mean, we had already quite demanding processes in place. Um, but fundamentally, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say we changed much in terms of our processes. I mean, what what I see po positively at, uh, about the SFGR is that they they do contribute to some um, some useful indicators, um, which are like some of these pie indicators of the principal adverse impact indicators are useful, and that I've used them in the engagement with our portfolio firms. Um, for example, one is the unadjusted gender pay gap, just to give an example. Um, mm -hmm. So this is, has been actually quite funny to to sort of interact with the portfolio companies on this because um, they often report back, um, okay, unadjusted gender pay gap, it's actually zero um, because um, adjusted for um, qualification and seniority, we pay the same amount to men and women. And and then mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, well, but it's actually not the adjusted gender pay gap, it's the unadjusted gender pay gap. <laughs> and then... Um, so you get into this discussion, okay, so why why is it actually that women have often less senior roles or um, work in, in, in types of um, jobs that are paid worse? And then in a number of times, actually, the portfolio companies, they, they sort of started a reflection process on that and, and really thought about how they could improve this, how they could promote maybe women um, more to senior roles also and and thought about their processes in that regard. And this is, for example, an indicator we didn't have before. And since now we report according to SFDR, we have it. And so we have the possibility to engage. And of course, it's also generally um, useful just to be able to say to your portfolio companies, we're sorry, but we have to report according to these regulations and we have to talk with you about these issues. And um, we don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. It's a law. Um, and um, I'm sorry, even if maybe it was a legacy asset and we couldn't bring it up in the DD yet because um, and because the regulation wasn't enforced yet. Now it's enforced. We have to do it. So this this is something positive, I think, about SFDR. 
Very interesting. So yes, it, it, it seems you are referring especially to these so-called pies. I, I love the name. Uh, by the way, you somehow uh, you have mm -hmm. to eat your pie and <laughs> have your pie and eat it too. But 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 these pies, um, they seem to be an important aspect of the whole regulatory package. Yes, yes. I mean, yeah, and they're a major challenge um, because it's sometimes hard to get the data, especially from small firms. Um, there's a lot of discussion in the market about what taking them mm -hmm. into account means. And um, yeah, um, some yeah some are more useful than others i mean there's also the the um, carbon related ones which um yeah i mean it's it's a bit of a yeah i mean on the one hand it's an important indicator of course for climate change like how much what your carbon footprint is but on the other hand since um there are no quantitative thresholds and um and it's very asset specific, like what your carbon footprint might be. It's very hard to judge, like what is a good carbon footprint mm -hmm. and what what is not. So, for example, in the case of our battery storage assets, we have um, uh, yeah, we have relatively high scope three carbon footprint, but that's because we um, charge and decharge the the batteries from the grid, and if there's still fossil energy in the grid, like in Germany, um then you have um, a carbon footprint, which is not I zero. See. So first and, I was assuming um, scope three emissions of a battery storage are high because of the raw materials that go into the battery. But you're telling me that may be part of it, but but the main thing is that you want to use the battery all the time, uh, which often will mean you just exactly. charge it from the grid and, and then all the carbon emissions that went into producing the electricity that you get from the grid count towards your scope three emissions. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, we're looking into if we could procure just a hundred percent renewable energy, but um, first of all, that has a, probably a return implication. And second of all, it's not a hundred percent clear if technically that's so the business model we, we have, if that's feasible, but we're looking into it. But in any case, I mean, any yeah. grid that. But, but the, the point of a battery in the grid is to provide that flexibility and, and sort of load uh, management that you need if you have a lot of renewables in the grid, right? So, so that should, to me, that, that seems to be the overriding benefit of having more battery storage. Exactly. And then, you know, using the grid whenever the battery is empty is simply a matter of making the whole thing economical. Exactly. And I mean, also for grids where there's still a lot of fossil or a part of uh, fossil energy there, you'll need batteries as uh, in order to enable more more renewables build out. So any grid requires mm. bat batteries to... Yeah. To, to help the energy yeah, transition. Yeah, it, it's, it's the old story that every indicator, you know, it, it can lead you astray uh, depending on the specific situation. Uh, and that's that's yeah. a case in point. Perhaps. And actually, I mean, I read research um, um, that said that actually Article 9 funds systematically have higher, um, higher impacts, uh, perform worse on the pies than Article 8 funds. Um, 
Why is that? Yeah, I mean, they gave some evidence exactly like like I just did. Um, for example, energy transition assets, they sometimes have a high high carbon footprint. Or also mm -hmm. they gave an example of a recycling firm that was active in um, yeah, in the recycling and as a result had a very high hazardous waste ratio. So, uh, mm -hmm. so you penalize then uh, um, someone who's actually addressing the problem for dealing with the problem. So that should really should be the case. And so there have been calls actually to, to put quantitative limits on these pies, which they aren't currently, just to make it a bit more comparable. But the, press, the problem is if they're sector agnostic, um, you can't compare apples with pears. Um, and they, then they might even contradict the, the, regulate, the EU taxonomy regulation, which is sector-specific. Um, so there might be contradictions then between SFDR and EU taxonomy if you introduce these limits, which should be um, yeah, also very, very paradoxical. <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, in the defense of the, those people who crafted this regulation, it is actually not easy um, to think of a regulatory framework that sort of hits all the right notes. Um, it's much easier to criticize it, of course. Um, but, but I think you've, you've given us some, some important insights into, you know, why, um, you know, uh, a fund with all the right intentions and all the right processes in place, if I may say so, uh, you know, doesn't automatically um, sail through all this, all this regulation and, and, and what some of the, the trade-offs are. If you, um, if you look forward, you know, do you have ideas how, how the regulation could be improved or adapted? What would you love to see in this space in the next couple of years? Well, as I mentioned earlier, there have been calls to sort of harmonize more the SSGR regulations and the EU taxonomy. And I would be in favor of that. I think that the activity-based approach of the EU taxonomy is, is better suited to, to our fund and also to um, bringing forward the energy transition as a whole. Um, so, so just let me ask, does that, I was surprised also when you, when we mentioned that, that reporting according to the EU taxonomy is the icing on the cake, although the EU taxonomy seems like the much more fundamental regulation. Uh, yes. that really sort of, it seems designed to be a basis for everything that follows. Um, yes, but for, um, for us, it hasn't been implemented that way because we are, mm -hmm. for us, the EU taxonomy is voluntary. We can currently say that we're not aligned with the EU taxonomy and we don't report according to it. Um, whereas for that FDR, that we no... have to, we have to report. And uh, I mean, the EU taxonomy is binding for, um, large corporates but not necessarily mm -hmm. for financial sector players yet. And is that in the cards that, that these two regulatory pieces will be tied together more strongly? I, uh, I mean, an easy way would be to say, well, you need to invest at least uh, X percent into green activities uh, if you want to have a certain classification. Um. Yes, I mean, it, it, at least it has been discussed in the in the case what I mentioned in the case of the do no significant harm provisions. Um, mm -hmm. But it's 
as far as I know, it's just a proposal at the moment, and it's not, and it has been done by it's a proposal by the ESAs, by the um, EU supervisory supervisory authorities. So not even by the lawmakers themselves. So it's I think the whole market is currently speculating on how it will further develop. Um, I yeah, but what I would yeah. tense situation. Yeah. 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 But what I mean, I, I hope go. no. What I mean, I do? hope that there will just be a bit more clarity. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, as I said, I'm about the SFDR and the lack of definitions. I'm really not very positive, and I'm not sure that there's much, much that can be done if you start out with a regulation that says um, declare on how much how much of your investments um, are sustainable, but we don't tell you actually what sustainable is. Um, it's very hard to go um, to improve from there. I think um, when the market has already mm. has already been confused about it, has then asked question about it, and then you confirmed that actually yes, it's in fact up to the up to the people to define what it, what sustainable is. So I think that's a very difficult situation. But I I do hope actually that there's just more um, more regulations from other sides that are not necessarily financial disclosure regulations. We've been focusing very much on regulation of the financial sector. Um, do you think we should also uh, widen the scope a little bit, perhaps? Yes, and uh, and in fact, regulations that are not, uh, let's say, ESG disclosure regulations, but that um, target directly the business models we invest in, they're actually much more relevant already today for us when we make a divest investment mm -hmm. decision. So, um, yeah, we first look, what, how do the re revenues look like? Um, is there maybe a de-risking of revenues, which for us is a, is a very big advantage. So, for example, if there's a feed-in tariff in place or any, any type of um, policy that de-risks the revenue stream, for us, that means we can come in already at lower, um, at a lower um, required return on investment, and that means we can do more projects and thereby um, contribute to the energy transition. So these types of policies already for us are much more relevant than the um, disclosure rules, and we would like to see there a lot more there. So, if for example, I um, see. For example, in EV charging, we're also um, looking at various deals at the moment, and um, and one challenge for us is just that there's a lot, um, a lot of revenue risk there, so we demand relatively high returns, and I think the market could be helped if the government provided some, some little de-risking there. So to sum up, you know. A regulation of the real economy that changes incentives and attractiveness of of renewable energy projects uh, is actually more important for you than how exactly you have to report and display what you do in your fund. Exactly, that's much more important because um, for I mean I think you've done that and you've analyzed that and your research too, you um, and yourself. No, I mean for investors, I. ESG disclosure for them, it means, um, well, yeah, is it a sustainable yes or no? Well, I guess it, I guess it's okay. I guess it looks sustainable. It's like a binary decision. So either they like it or not. Um, but for all the rest of um, the other policies, they directly impact our returns and there every basis point counts. 
so we can um, sell our fund better to investors and um, attract, attract more investors to the market. And that's what these other policies yes. target. It's the returns um, that matter more. Yeah, I think a really big question is, um, it seems to be the European Union's stated goal to to accelerate the transition. And it seems there's a lot of um, activity and resources spent on regulating the financial market in that regard. Um, and perhaps too little focus on simply just regulating the real economy and letting the financial market follow. Um, so, so I would absolutely agree with that. And let's hope we, we see more of that. But, but also, I think in the meantime, I hope that this regulation will evolve. I somehow still have hope for some Article 10 that might come on stream at some point that sort of clears up the mess a little bit. Um, um, that would be great. Let, let's see. Great. That would be great, right? Article X that somehow uh, solves the, squares the circle. Anyways, um, thank you very much for sharing your insights. Um, I think it was good to uh, hear how the practice of a sustainable investor somehow interacts with, with these regulatory proposals and how, how much in flux they still are. Um, that's been very insightful. Thank you very much for, for sharing, Lena. Thank you for having me on your podcast. It was a pleasure. Innovations in Sustainable Finance a University of St. Gallen podcast by Julian Kölbel.